Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. On the other end, there's a phenomenon of fewer and fewer good eggs being available when people want them called premature ovarian failure. And it's increasing. So we have shifts in the in, in this picture of reproductive health and reproductive timing, which is, you know, not good for our species, I think, in terms of ability to conceive and the fertility rate and so on and so forth. Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And today I'm bringing you a conversation that might be one of the most important conversations that I've had on the show, which is saying a lot because we've had a lot of important thought leaders and a lot of important conversations here. My guest in conversation today is with Dr. Shanna Swan. She is one of the world's leading environmental and reproductive epidemiologists and a professor of environmental medicine and public health at the ECAN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City. She's an award-winning scientist, and her work examines the impact of environmental exposures, including chemicals such as phthalates and bisphenols, on men and women's reproductive health and the neurodevelopment of children. So... Today, we talk about the global fertility crisis, our fertility and the changing fertility in our modern world. And we talk about population growth and population decline. We talk about birth rates. We talk about the ability to become pregnant and how that is changing for the worse, not only in North America, but across the globe. So wherever you are listening to this show today, whether it is the United States, whether it's South America, Europe, Asia, any Australia, all of the places, all of the places, global citizens, we are in a global fertility crisis. And we talk about why that is. And we explore the role of phthalates and uh, exposure in the womb and its development on the masculinization or the uh, testosteroneization of our men. And we talk about the impact that it has on women and PCOS and endometriosis. We talk about sperm count and how our sperm count is declining and has been declining steadily at about 2.6% per year, which is a very scary number. There's been more than a 50% decline in under 40 years in our sperm count. We talked about um, something called AGD. Um, If you're someone who has a little bit more street cred, you may recognize this as the taint, but this is the anal uh, genital distance and how this is a predictor, at least in men, for not only penile size and girth, but sperm count uh, throughout the years as well. Uh, We talked about phthalate syndrome, how this is assigned at birth and how we are exposed to phthalates in the womb. We talk about bisphenols, so bisphenol A, which is the very famous one. We touch on bisphenol S and bisphenol F and what the effects are of both phthalates, 
bisphenols on the human body and development. We talk about persistent organic products and their role in the endocrine system as well. And so we talk about what's causing this rate in, you know, fertility treatments. If you know somebody, or maybe you yourself had trouble conceiving naturally and having to go down this sort of uh, route of IVF, we talk about how that is increasing or has been increasing in, uh, in recent years, uh, what's causing it and maybe more importantly, what we do about it. I was absolutely enthralled. I can tell you personally, I have been wanting her on the show for at least a year, probably closer to two since her book came out. The book is called Countdown, and we will make sure that it is in the show notes. Absolutely critical conversation for you to be listening to, whether you are in your reproductive years and you are wanting to have uh, children, or if you are in perimenopause and you are thinking about how is it that I can balance, what are some of the other reasons why my hormones may be imbalanced? This is the conversation for you. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Shanna Swan. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health. The list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk, and my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres-ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box 
free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate, Melody, you love the best. Dr. Shauna Swan, I am just... I mean, I'm beside myself. I'm so excited to have you on The Better Show. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Stephanie. I'm so happy to be here and talking to you. We're going to have fun today. We are. And I was saying to you in the chat, I have been wanting you on the show probably maybe a year, a year, since your book came out. I think your book came out uh, February 2021. And I knew that I wanted you on the show because your message, your research, um, your work is incredibly interesting at the same time as terrifying. Um, And I think that this is probably going to be one of the more important conversations that we have on the show in terms of educating ourselves as, as humans, right? And the future of our species. So your book, uh, Countdown is the name of the book that I'm referring to. Um, You talk in the book about a global fertility crisis. So let's just start with some basic definitions. Can you explain what a global, what, what is that? What is a global fertility crisis? And fertility in and of itself is kind of a big word. Uh, so let's maybe unpack those a little bit. Yeah. So fertility is, is really complicated. You know, so a, a woman or a couple uh, is called infertile if they haven't conceived in 12 months of trying to get pregnant. So they're not using any contraception, they're having sex, and they're not making it, you know? So then they're labeled as infertile. Um, fecundability, which is a huge, terrible word, right? <laughs> but it, it is the ability to be fecund, that is to produce a child. And so that's a little different. And you can talk about that's sometimes measured by how long it takes you to get pregnant, how many months, how many years, you know, the probability that you conceive in a given menstrual cycle, all those are things that contribute to fecundability. But what what the question you asked is fertility worldwide, that usually refers to something called the total fertility rate. I'm sorry about all these terms. And, and that's, but what that is, is the average number of children that a woman or a couple, assuming a stable couple, will have in their lifetime. Okay? So what's happened to that number is that it's dropped pretty dramatically uh, from the time it's been widely tracked, which the latest figures I've seen go back to 1960, right? So that's a pretty long time. And what and if if you want to learn about this, if if the listener wants to learn about this, if you want to learn about this, there's a very easy way to do this because you can go to a website, um, and it's called World Bank Fertility Data. Pretty simple, right? World Bank Fertility Data, and there you see this interactive map or graph where you can put in the country you're interested in, the years you're interested in, and you can actually see what has happened to the fertility rate over time, right? Okay, so now we have a resource that we can look at that. And when we look at that, um, you see that 
a fertility rate of 2.1 is singled out. And why is that? That's the number of children which a couple would have to be stable. It's called replacement, right? So you have a man and a woman, and they have 2.1 children, so they're replacing themselves with a little bit extra for possible loss, okay? So in some sense, if you want the population to be stable, you want the country to have 2.1 as their total fertility rate. At a minimum. Um, or, or is that the number that that's the golden number that we're that we're aiming for? I think it's a matter of what your goals are, but that is the number that you want to achieve for a stable population. In other words, okay. for the number of people in that population to remain constant. Um, if, so what's happened to that? Well, it's dropped from 1960 uh, when it was over five children per couple worldwide to um, under two now. So a large proportion of the world is now below replacement. And in some countries, it's really scary. And the, the lowest fertility rates are in East Asia. Why is Japan, a whole, whole other Korea, question. yeah. Korea, mm -hmm. Singapore, South Korea now has a total fertility rate of 0.89. 0.89. Not even, not even one. Not even one. So you can see it doesn't take a you know genius to see that, that this is going to have huge impacts sociologically, economically, demographically. Um, one, one thing is if you think about what's the shape of the population? Like if you put them in a graph and you put you know, old people on top and young people on the bottom. The mm -hmm. old pyramid, that's called the population pyramid. The old pyramid used to have a pretty, it used to be pretty symmetric. You know, there's a long, wide base. And at the top, very few people, right? So the five babies at the bottom, middle is kind of thinner. And then the there's like, you know, the older right. people that are slowly, yeah, okay. I should just think of this pyramid in Egypt. Right? Yeah, a triangle. It would look like a triangle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And... What's been happening is that the bottom has been shrinking and the top has been growing because life expectancy has increased. Right. Okay, so it's inverted. It's starting to invert. You understand the bottom is small now. Smaller. And okay, mm -hmm. so this is huge impacts for the population because who's gonna take care of all those old people? Who's going to produce the products that the, the society needs? It's those that middle group which needs to support the top and the bottom, right? And as the bottom shrinks, the middle shrinks and the top grows further. So there are, there's huge discussions about this among demographers. Um, you know, where is this going? And, you know, nobody has a crystal ball, but there's a lot of good guesses. And um, what are what people are saying is there's going to be a maximum world population and the, the years that that's going to be achieved just depends on who you talk to. But let's say 2050, you know, there'll be a maximum of X billion people in the world. And then, and here's the kicker, that will decrease and it will never come back. Is that scary enough? That's 
It petrifies me. I mean, I, I think about as you're talking, I'm like, I'm a visual person. So I'm thinking of almost like a roller coaster, right? So we are like climbing, climbing, climbing. We have this, you know, 8 million, I think we're at right now, something like that. Right. Uh, and then you cross this sort of point of no return where you have the point eight in Korea, as you mentioned. And I think China, for the longest time, I know China had a one child rule. And I think they've changed that now. Right. But then you just, you know, thinking about that roller coaster, you just go right. off the cliff because because if you're yeah. not even replacing the middle, right, the adults are not even replacing themselves, um, then we start to see this decline of the species, right? This is where we start right. to see humans. And by the way, yeah. it's not just humans. We won't spend a lot of time talking about that, but I can tell you, if we had more time, we could talk about declines in populations of wildlife and of domesticated animals, in dogs and horses, and on and on and on and on. So why do I say it will never come back? I'm not the only one who says that. That's actually a quote. Um, there's a, a wonderful book by Daryl Bricker, um, and it's Empty Planet, and people might want to look at that. But um, And then there are many other people who say that Jorgen Anders, who's Norwegian and wonderful demographer, and so on. And the reason is that a lot of the things that are bringing down that total fertility rate are marks of progress. Women entering the workforce women getting educated, availability of contraception. These are all things, and by the way, urbanization as well. These are all things that cause the total fertility rate to go down. And if you think about yourself, I mean, you have three children, I have three children, where, you know, but for a woman wanting to enter the workforce or just entering the workforce, you know, who has four or five six children, that's not going to work for her, right? So right. as you can see, these two forces are opposing each other. So more progress for women, you know, in terms of education and economic advantage and equality means a lowering of the total fertility rate. And, and evidence that it's not coming back is that many countries, particularly in East Asia, have tried and are trying really, really hard to have people, you know, get people to have more children, right? And they're offering tax credits, and they're offering housing, subsidized housing, and they're offering, you know, all kinds of advantages if they if people would um, have more children. And it's not working. That's the interesting thing. It's not working. Like the, ta the tax credits and the financial incentives are not working? Or... I mean, they may work to some extent for some people, but overall, yeah. the total fertility rate is not going back up in these very low countries. So um, that's why I say it is not, you know, it's going to go down or it's not going to come back. And that's why other people are saying that. Just let me add that when I talk about these causes, social causes, which I talked about quite a bit now, um, are not the only reasons that it's going down and we'll talk about some other reasons yeah. yes yeah we're, we're going to get into environmental yeah. um yeah. and lifestyle factors absolutely yeah. but i do think that it's interesting that when you look at north american or we'll just say westernized um countries uh, where we do see this declining uh, birth rate. I remember, so my uh, my husband is Italian and it was just commonplace for, you know, and my ex-husband, you know, God bless his his grandmother. His grandmother had uh, 
eight children. Like his, my ex-husband's uh, father is like eight of 10, sorry, 10 children. He was eight of 10, yeah. right? So in Greece, and which is my ex-husband's uh, nationality, my current husband's Italian, it was very commonplace to have five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 children. And now when you look at Italy and you look at, I'm actually not familiar with the Greek um, uh, birth rate, but I know in, in Italy, they are having children later, right? So it, and it is a function of that education of women and women getting into the, and this is not to say that that's a bad thing. Of course we want, we want, I'm a highly educated woman myself. I consider myself lucky because I've always been in business for myself. So I set my own hours. So I would bring my baby to the clinic. I would breastfeed my children in between patients. Like I set the rules. It was my house, right? Right. But not everybody has that. I, I recognize that that's because I was running my own company. Not every woman has the you know luxury of bringing her child and breastfeeding on you know the baby on demand in between clients. Like that's not necessarily accepted everywhere. Um, but in Italy and in England and Canada, where I'm from, and the, and the states, um, these numbers are children. You know, there's so many women that are choosing, let's say, to have babies later in life, and you know, we can talk about some of the physiology there, but like the egg quality and the sperm quality, uh, potentially, uh, with the, with the partner is not necessarily what it was when you were, let's say like my husband, um, his parent, my, now my in-laws, my Italian, they were 18 when they had him, right? Their egg quality at 18 is going to be different when you're 40, right? So there's, there's something to really, to think about there for the women. I know there's a lot of women listening here, um, uh, young and old, and for those of you that have daughters uh, and and sons, for that matter, but I think for egg quality, I think this is a is a is a big limiting factor sometimes um, in in infertility. And I know we'll talk about sperm sperm and, and sperm count as well. Uh, but something to consider. Um, I know that my in law, my mother in law, now she'll say, "I'm so happy I had my kids early because I kind of got them out of the way, and now I can enjoy them." Like she's 60, and they're you know, and they're 40, you know, and she's just right, you right. know, she's having the best time. So that's also something to think about too. Yeah, well, the age at first birth is definitely getting higher. <laughs> yeah, it's later. Yeah, and later, yeah. later in life, and uh, people are, and that's in part due to that. You know, I'm going to get educated first. I'm going to get my degree. I'm going to establish my business. I'm going right. to um, wish something that men till now have been the ones that have done. You know, right. but now the woman is saying, "Hey, me too. I want to do this. I want." to get ahead and you know so and so that age as you said the age at first birth is really important here because men have declining fertility and semen quality to some extent with age not so much i mean i don't know the oldest man ever to father child but it's pretty old i've seen 98 you know, uh, you oh, know. I was going to say 70. Wow. That really trumped. Oh, I did not no, realize okay. 98. Wow. Um, that's and, awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah. You can Google. It's kind of a fun thing to look at. I should have done that maybe before I came on, but, um, it, that means that not so much has changed since they were 16. Right. And there's right. been a long time. So the rate of decline of male fertility is pretty slow. Um, absent certain, behaviors and exposures we can talk about but leave that out but for a woman you know she's born with all the eggs she's ever going to have right 
And actually, she has a lot more in the womb, and then she they're pruned, if you will, and then she's born with this, these eggs. And, and then that supply decreases, and it decreases pretty rapidly. So, you know, they're available maybe 15, 16 years of age, possibly earlier. I don't want to go into that, those very early pregnancy. But, and, sure. and then, you know, after 35, the quality starts going down. And as you approach menopause, of course, the number gets smaller and the quality gets less. And so when you're waiting that long to get pregnant, you know, it's a riskier game. It's, it's risky anyway. There's always odds of getting pregnant and not pregnant. But when you do it later, your odds are lower. So just a word, you know, I'm sure people, your listeners and you, of course, know about the possibility of egg freezing. And many women are doing that as insurance, freezing the egg when they're young and the quality is good and having it available to them when they're older and want to get pregnant after they've gotten their job or their PhD or whatever it is that they're going to they're gonna do. Um, I just want to put a word in here about, um, you know, social justice. I don't know how much you talk about that, but um, not everyone can afford to do this. Right. Series, right. And right. actually, a lot of the things that I'm going to suggest that might be helpful are not equally available to everybody. So there's a theme running through all this, which I won't point out each time, but maybe people can think about, could I do this? Could a poorer person do this? Could a less educated person do this? Could a person who's, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, the options for protecting ourselves um, decline with our declining economic status. Right. Yes. Well said. The other thing, um, as it, I want to talk about male fertility as well, but I just want to point out for women, one of the, and this might just be my observation, but it does seem. So when I first got my period, I was probably, gosh, I was like 14 or 15 maybe. And I do know moms now. Uh, so my sons are in right now, grade seven and grade five. Like there's some girls in, um, when my now in grade seven, he was in grade six, girls were getting their period when they were 10. Um, and even younger, there's been reports of, of girls getting their periods earlier and earlier, like eight, nine, 10, uh, which is a little ahead of what you would expect for the onset of Menarche. And it makes me think about potential accelerants or things that are maybe accelerating either the sexual development of the child or the acceleration of the aging of the egg. So now we are starting to get this coordination of menses or this, you know, you know, the, the menstrual cycle um, for girls earlier and earlier. Do you have any, um, I mean, I know we're going to talk about environment uh, and this might be a good stepping stone into that. Um, but is there, what are, what are your observations or what are your um, thoughts or what does the science tell us in terms of why this might be happening? Do we know why girls are getting, it seems like girls are getting their periods and starting that age of men, like that onset of men are earlier and earlier. Um, well, what you're talking about this early puberty um, or decreasing age of puberty is definitely a phenomenon. It's been studied for quite a while now. And I, I want to mention it's not just the age at menarche, but it's also um, age of breast development. And it's particularly right. dramatic for breast development, which is earliest, by the way, in um, 
African-American girls in the United States compared to um, Caucasian girls. Socially and psychologically, this poses real challenges because these very young girls of eight and nine looking like they're what you know 16 14 yeah 16 yeah <laughs> um, yeah they are not able to handle psychologically the inputs that they're getting from males and it's it's, it's actually a serious problem um yeah. so um apart from the physiological uh consequences as you said earlier you know sort of shifting the the whole healthy egg period earlier is going to make it harder to get pregnant later and on the other end there's um you know a phenomenon uh, of you know f fewer and fewer good eggs being available when people want them called premature ovarian failure um and it's increasing so we have shifts in the in this you know picture of reproductive health and reproductive timing which is you know not good for our species i think in terms of ability to conceive and the fertility rate and so on and so forth so did you want to switch to causes of all this or should we talk about the males first a little bit? Yeah, let's talk about let's talk about the males. So for this is for uh, I, I think this is important because you had a study in 2017 I'd like to discuss and I'd like to talk about uh, sperm count. I'd like to talk about testosterone. So let's let's start. Let, let's go to um, kind of the rate of change, we'll say, or potentially decline in what we're seeing in our male, our beautiful male counterparts. So the question of how much sperm a man has, how much sperm he produces, um, and whether that's changed over time, that's been around, I would say, for 30 years. You know, scientists discussing this question. Um, and the first paper that really got people's attention was 92. Okay? So... And it came out of Denmark, where a lot of this work has been done. Pioneers, really, in this area. <clears throat> and if you think about 92, reflecting on sperm counts earlier, going back, you know, all the way to, say, the 40s, um, you're talking about a paper that's coming out in 92, but, but the problem is there for a while, right? A long time, actually. Um, and what this paper said is that over 50 years, sperm count has decreased 50%. 50. In the 90s, this was reported. It was published in 92. Yeah. Went back 50 years. Okay. Okay. And so this was a very controversial and many people were skeptical and I was skeptical. Um, it sounded too big, 50%. Um, and... When I looked at the paper, it didn't, I didn't think it really convinced me, right? Can I, can I ask a question? I'm sorry to interrupt you. Is it, is it total sperm count or is it sperm quality? Like, are we looking oh. at a gluttonation? Like, what are we looking at when we say okay. sperm has de declined? Okay. So all of these papers and everything I'm going to say about this has to do with number. 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 Okay. Not motion, not shape. 
And just a quick reason for that, because the methods of counting sperm have been the same for a long, long time, okay? But the methods of measuring motion and shape morphology have changed. Okay. So you can't really separate the methodological changes from the actual physiological changes for those things, right? So that one's much more difficult. But um, count, we can be talking about concentration, which is how many are in a you know, standard square uh, under the microscope, or how many are there in the whole sample? So there's total sperm count and sperm concentration, and they're kind of used interchangeably because the amount in the sample, the volume, is not actually very sensitive and hasn't changed very much. So that's one thing that hasn't, you know, we don't have to worry about. So we can kind of talk about count and concentration interchangeably. Okay, and let me just point out that when I say 50%, you didn't gasp, and most people don't because it, it doesn't hit you. So I want to give an analogy. If I told you that IQ had decreased 50%. Oh my God. That's crazy. Right? Yeah, no, I, I get it. I guess. Right? I, mean, I apologize for my lack of response. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I do. Oh my God, you really freak out, right? Yeah. But people don't about sperm count. And one of the reasons is that men make a lot of sperm. There's just I, that's what I think it is. It's like, well, there isn't there like forty other billion of them. Like, if we decrease it, and it's it used to be a hundred, and now it's fifty. Like, we still got fifty. Like, right, that's sort of my right. thinking, exactly. but that's not right. That's, that's not one right. Reason. Yeah. So, um, maybe I'll interrupt here and just say why that matters for fertility. Okay, so if you look at the, I remember we talked about fecundability, the ability to get pregnant. Okay, so if you look at its population. You see how long it takes them to get pregnant, or you see how many conceive in a one menstrual cycle of trying. Okay, let's focus on that. How likely are you to get pregnant in a single month of May, you know, for example? <laughs> All right. Uh, if the sperm count is high, it really doesn't matter for that probability of conceiving, whether it's 70 or 90 or 100 or 150. There's just a lot, a lot of surplus, right? So in that sense, count doesn't matter. If it's really high, it's extra, if you will, doesn't matter. Once you go low, then it matters a lot. It really matters, yeah. yeah. It really matters. And if, you, of course, if you go to zero, you can't conceive at all. If you go to very low numbers like 10 and 15 million, it's still a million, but it's still 10 and 15 million, then it it's very difficult to conceive. You're subfertile, you are actually called infertile, right? At 10 to 15 mil. Yeah, I mean, the WHO standard now is, is 15 million per milliliter. We can talk about that if you want. But, but yes, I do the point want to talk about is that, that even the low numbers are millions. <laughs> and with right. millions of sperm being produced all the time, by the way, men produce sperm all the time. It takes about 70 days to produces sperm. Unlike women who are born with all the eggs they're ever going to have, men keep making them, right? And so you, why should we worry? There's always going to be more. But we should, because now we know that when that number drops below about 45 million per milliliter, then the chance of getting pregnant drops pretty quickly to zero. So that's why 50% drop matters a lot. It matters a lot. And where do we have global averages or does it vary by 
country or temperature? Does it, does it, or is, what is the, do we know what the global mean is? Uh, that depends on time, right? That depends on when. Okay, that's what our studies are about. So let me go back. So this paper came out in 92. And like I said, I was a skeptical. And so I did what every epidemiologist might do, is to say, if you're skeptical, why? And are there factors that might explain this away? So, for example, maybe studies in the past had younger men, right? And that might matter. Not a lot. I told you men are not so sensitive to age, but that could matter. Maybe studies in the past used different counting methods that could, so maybe the old methods back there in 1940, who knows how careful they were, who knows, you know, maybe they counted higher and now we count lower. That's very, very possible. Um, maybe men now are more obese, more likely to be obese. Obesity is a risk factor for lower sperm count. And yes, men are more obese. Would that explain it? Um, maybe men these days are smoking more, smoking lower sperm count, and so on and so forth. So you can ask all these questions of what could have produced a decline other than physiology changing, right? And that's, that's what epidemiologists do. <laughs> they look for these well, factors. Well, for 50 years, you, you can't, you, there's, no, there's nothing that you could explain from a genetic. No. There, there's there's right. nothing that you can explain from a inherent, intrinsic reason why that's happening. There has to that's be something right. extrinsic. That's yeah. Right. That's exactly right. So it has to be something in the environment or something that is in the measurement itself, or it could be something in the men. Okay. And another possibility, which I didn't mention, which is actually a real uh, scary one, is that who are these men? Who were the men that were in the studies in 1940 versus the studies in 1990? You know, and, and maybe the men in the past came in because of they were proud of their fertility or they were getting a vasectomy because they had too like many a children. user bias. Right, 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 right. Recruitment right. mm -hmm. bias, selection bias. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and, and then men in later years are coming because they have concerns, well, about their fertility. Well, they'll have, they'll have low count. So all of these things were important. And so what I did was I said, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take six months and I'm going to get all the 61 underlying studies. And I'm going to go through every one of those. and I'm going to look at all these factors. And then I'm going to quantify them and put them in a spreadsheet. Okay. And then I'm going to rerun the model and see what happens to the decline. That sound like a reasonable program? Yes, that's what a scientist. That's I mean, that's the that's the right. that's what science is. It's like let me right. test this hypothesis. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. So we did that, and I had a colleague, actually two, who helped me. So we have independent eyes on this, and um, it was really a wake up call because when we looked at the results, Stephanie, nothing had changed. Nothing had changed. None of those factors mattered. So I had to go, whoa, you know? Another thing a scientist does is if they have <laughs> convincing evidence that they were wrong, they have to change their opinion, right? So I began to say, okay, maybe this is correct. And then I did a couple of other studies, which we don't have time to go into. 
But the bottom line was nothing made this go away. Okay. So then I started thinking, okay, what could cause this? And like you said, it's not genetics. It's too fast for genetics. And so it has to be environment. Those are the two sort of categories of causes. So if it's environment, God, there's everything, right? Uh, but you can kind of separate them into lifestyle, things you can control, and things you can't control. Okay. And so lifestyle, I just want to say those quickly, matters. Smoking matters. Obesity matters. We can talk about more of this if you want. It matters for men and women, by the way, for their fertility. Um, exercise matters. Um, and a lot of things you talk about on your podcast, I think, how to be healthy, you know, and, you know, maintain your, you know, fertility and so on matters, of course, for sperm count. So um, lifestyle factors are important. Stress is another one which is very difficult to control, but it actually measurably affects your sperm count and your fertility. Okay. So, we can go into that. That's another podcast, you know, lifestyle factors. And, right, right. Mm -hmm. But my work has been focused on the other kind of environmental factors. And the ones that I particularly focus on are on chemicals. And why is that? Well, we know that chemicals can affect our fertility uh, and, and, and our reproductive function. And the particular group of chemicals that are most concerning are those that have a, the ability to mess with our testosterone and mess with our estrogen. And why? Those are the sex steroid hormones. Okay. So actually any messing around with our hormones is a bad thing. And, you know, there's hormones that mess with your um, immune function and there are hormones that mess with, you know, change your, uh, you know, your BMI <laughs> and so on, obesogens. But the ones that I focused on are those that can affect the reproductive system. And those are the steroid hormones, testosterone and its analogs and estrogen. And there are other steroid hormones, as you know. Um, and, and so it was a really big wake up call beginning at about 1970, actually, that um, there may be things that are inadvertently changing our body's hormones. There was a drug that women took to prevent miscarriage. It was called mm -hmm. Dysilvestro. Have you heard of that? Yep. 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 And this drug did terrible things to the offspring, including causing devastating cancer of their reproductive organs, right? And this was an estrogen. This pharmaceutical had the ability to alter estrogen in a very profound way. And then it had reproductive effects and it had cancer effects and it had psychological, it had a lot of, you know, you can't mess with one system in the body without messing with them all, actually. You know, so, so you know, when people realized that this drug called DES for short could do this, then they started asking what other chemicals could be estrogens? And that was the first start of considering chemicals in the environment that could affect our hormones, which became a wider class called endocrine disrupting chemicals or EDC. Let me stop there because that's a lot for people to absorb and, and maybe you can channel some of their questions to me. What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. 
I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. So what I'm thinking about is and I'm trying to tie this to what you were just talking about with this study from the 40s, uh, lasting 50 years and published in 92. You know, when you think about what happened in the 40s, like the end of the war or, you know, end of the Second World War. And while I wasn't around, I do, you know, I do know that one of the things that they were doing for the soldiers in order to preserve food was sending, let's say, powdered food or things in cans. And like that was sort of the big in order to sustain the soldiers, one of the maybe, um, you know, one of the things that came out of that was preservatives and things that, you know, canned food so that, you know, things didn't spoil when they were, you know, I know the trenches were more of a World War One thing. My son is really into the World War. So I know like the difference between there's trenches in World War One and World War Two. there were tanks. Anyway, um, but so I know that the spoilage of food was a big concern uh, for the West, we'll say. And so they started preserving a lot of food and sending that over. Uh, I want to sort of highlight that and also underline what you're saying with some of these drugs that are estrogen in nature. When we think about uh, PPM, like parts per million, parts per billion, parts per trillion, like these are considered very low dose. We were talking in the pre-chat before we started recording the pill, the oral contraceptive is also a endocrine disrupting uh, chemical. And when we look at like estrogens, for example, I know when we look at labs, we are measuring estrogens in picograms, right? And that is measured in one trillionth of a gram. Okay. And most people can't even imagine how small that is with testosterone to your point we usually look at testosterone in nanograms which is a billionth of a gram so these are really really small particles very so i i I just want to highlight what you're saying because hormones oftentimes they speak in whispers right that you don't need a big dose in order to have a big a big effect and any kind of messing with that maybe it's preservatives maybe it's toxicants in the environment you know all of that which i think we're about to dive into um, can absolutely mess with testosterone both uh, and estrogen receptors and activation of metabolic and and affecting the metabolism of these these hormones as well yeah so I think that's a really great point. Uh, the the that because one of the defenses of um, <clears throat> manufacturers about the presence of these chemicals in their products are the doses are too low to matter, and yeah. that's not true. And you've made an eloquent argument of why uh, you know they do matter and 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 they do matter and and sometimes low doses can actually do different things than higher doses that's that's another right. question 
But well, that's um, the non-monotonic dose response, right? right? This is yeah. where I get I get really annoyed when I hear people say, "Oh, well, the dose makes the poison." It's like not right. always, not right. always, not yeah. always, right? And probably for um, these chemicals, these hormonal, because the endocrine system is not linear; it doesn't respond linearly, linear right. straight line. Non-monotonic means it's not a straight line, but it also, you know, doesn't go. It can change direction. And, and that's true of endocrines in the body, naturally. So endocrinologists know this, but most people do go to this, you know, worse, more is worse, you know. Anyway. Um, but that's toxicology. I mean, I just, I want to say one more, like that's toxicology. We're talking yeah. about endocrinology, which is slightly different, right? right? It's like, yes, you can have a thousand, you can give an animal a thousand times the dosage and you can say, okay, that's toxic, but that doesn't necessarily happen in, in real life, right? So we don't right. often get a thousand times the exposure right. in order to sort of see some kind of uh, right. low L, you know, some low dose effect or something right. like that. Yeah. So yeah. I want to go back to, your nice point about um, what was happening in the 40s and 50s. When the war ended, Second World ended, um, there was a lot, there was a great appreciation for science. In fact, scientists were revered. Um, they had- That's part of why we won the war. Why we won the war. And yeah. development of medicine that happened during that time, incredible miracles of medicine, you know, the modern antibiotics began to be produced. And so, so medicine was just, you know, and science were just revered. And the, you, there's a lot of ads. I have some of these old ads, better living through chemistry, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I have one, which is amazing. It, it says plastics, an important part of your diet. So, oh, wow. Plastic, okay. Plastics were considered miracles of modern science. And they allowed us to have the lifestyle that we wanted, the post-war modern lifestyle that everyone wanted. And you, you, in The Graduate, I don't, you don't know this movie probably, but Dustin Hoffman is a young, you know, I don't know, 18-year-old. And he's being talked to at a cocktail party uh, by this older man who says, I have one word for you, son, plastic. Hmm. Right, I mean, that was that was what everyone thought was going to, you know, be the the new wave, and it was the new wave. And the production of plastic increased phenomenally rapidly after about at the end of the war. At fifth, if you look at the production uh, after nineteen fifty, it's just and it's going, it's still going up. And I just want to say an aside here, as we kind of are not talking about global warming at all or the climate crisis, they're tied together because plastics are made from petroleum byproducts, right? Petroleum products. So it's not going away. <laughs> We're, we still got the petroleum. We got to figure out what to do with it. And Which is where a lot of medications are based on that as well, right? They're like petroleum, they're by, yeah. So, so the, here you have this phenomenon, social phenomenon that, that more and more things are made out of plastic and people are loving them. And at the beginning, they didn't think about what would happen to this after they use them. And I don't want to go into the whole issue of recycling and reusing and so on, but um, it didn't work. Let's put it like that. It didn't work. And and now we're stuck with this, this you know, load, planetary load of plastic. And these products have the ability to change our body's hormones. So that's the key message. And I haven't said that, um, but let me 
go in, dive in here. So plastics have a large number of chemicals in them. They're used to produce the chemicals. And these these chemicals in there, you know, they, they give it its properties. So if you want a soft plastic, you're going to put in a class of chemicals called phthalates. Terrible word. P-H-T-H. <laughs> Puff of phthalates. I hate that word, but I have to say it yeah. all the time. It's but, like Michelle Puffeifer. The P is silent. We'll say. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So the interesting thing about, if so you can ask, oh, phthalates is a big class, by the way, but there are several really bad guys in there that are worse than others. And, and those are the chemicals that have the ability to lower our body's hormones, particularly testosterone. Does it lower both estrogen and testosterone? No. Or is it specifically no. for testosterone? Okay. Are, I cares. Chemicals tend to lower testosterone, like either they lower testosterone and raise estrogen. Um, they're, so they're anti androgenic pro-estrogenic that's one certain because they're increasing aromatization or they're increasing they raise the... or they're estrogenic right and they um lower testosterone so those are okay so it testosterone is thought of as the male hormone it isn't women have it women need it but it is certainly more prevalent in males and it is more developmentally important i think in males so then we have to take another deep dive and ask, when is it important? And it's most important when during pregnancy, during early pregnancy, and that's because that's the time that the genitals are being formed. And they need testosterone to form correctly. So now we're really getting into the weeds here Oh, I love it. That's good. So we're in okay. the first trimester. Where does the woman know she's pregnant yet? She's pregnant. She might not even know she's pregnant. Her so like baby first six to eight weeks of gestation. Formed. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. In rats, you know, you can do this in rats. You can feed the mother rat some phthalate in her food, and then you can see what it does to the genitals, and. So that many studies have done that. When I got into this field, a friend of mine said, Shana, you should look at phthalates. And I'm going, what's phthalates? You know, I never heard of it. Why would I have, you know, <laughs> that was, you know, around 2000. And, and my friend, John Brock said, well, everybody's got them in their bodies, including pregnant women. And here's what they see in rat studies. And then he told me about what's called the phthalate syndrome. Mm -hmm. And these are the changes that phthalate exposure induces in genetic males if they're exposed in utero at the right time. Let so me we have a mother who's pregnant with a boy. She's pregnant with her son. She does so for in terms of humans, we she does she may not necessarily know that she's pregnant yet because when this line of German when this when this is happening, let's say she may not even test positive if she doesn't if she's right. if she doesn't. If she right. missed a period or something like that. So explain what uh, phthalate, gosh, I always want to say the pH, but to explain what phthalate syndrome is. What do we see in our, in well, the rodent studies that have been uh, right. Uh, right. looked at? What, what are some of the characteristics of it? So let me go back to the animals because this is where it was first seen. 
<clears throat> and so they were asking, okay, here's this, these chemical phthalates. We're going to give it to the mother rat, and then we're going to see what her offspring look like. And we're going to give it to her at the right time. They figured out what the right time later. But anyway, initially they gave it a, a, over a different period. And, um, and what they saw was that the males, the genetic males, okay? Okay, they, right? The, the males that XY. Males. The XY chromosomal male. Right. Mm -hmm. They were born with looking somewhat less male typical compared, and I'll go into what that is, compared to the pups that were born to mothers who did not get this exposure. Okay? And there's a low doses, by the way. Not super low, but they're, you know, certainly. Drop in a swimming pool. That's pretty low, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So I have to wind you back a little more and just say, here's this little fetus embryo, very, very small, and initially, the genitals don't exist. They're, they're only something that's going to be developed under the genetic regulation. You know, on the, okay. So it, it, there's actually just a line. It's called the gonadal ridge. Just a single yeah. line. And it's the same in males and females. So that's fine. And then everything changes at this critical period which we know in rats is day 18 to 21 of gestation. We know that exactly. Um, and there starts to be production of testosterone by the newly developed testes that are forming in the rat. Because this is like very active time, right? And um, the testosterone, it gives a signal to that ridge, that single genital ridge to differentiate depending on whether it's a genetic male or a genetic female. So if it's a genetic male, the testosterone is produced, it comes in, and then things start to differentiate. So, you know, we have o women have ovaries, men have testes. Those come out of the same germ cells, if you will, the same, you know, uh, original yeah. cells, and mm -hmm. it's testosterone that makes the male develop testes and the female is the default that will be an, an ovary. Yes. And, and the penis starts developing, and then, and then, and then, and all these organs start developing under the influence of testosterone. Now, if there isn't enough testosterone... Because of phthalate exposure. Or other things, but yeah, phthalate. Or other things, yeah. yeah. For some reason, there's too little testosterone, then that doesn't happen, or it doesn't happen completely, or it doesn't, you're right, as fully. And that's why we say that those males are under-masculinized. They didn't make the transition fully. And so if we start off, if the default for the human is female, which I've known, I, I don't think that that's common knowledge. That's certainly something that we talk about on the show. Uh, we've talked about on the show several times because there's ho like there's homologs, right? If you look at the labia majora and you look, you know, like that kind of all see, that all gets sewed up and becomes the testes, you know? I'm so, so glad you do talk about that because if you think about the Bible, you know, <laughs> you know, Eve, oh, right. 
right? Yeah. Mason Adam, but actually it's yeah. the reverse. Right? I feel like some I feel like some male priests really wanted that to be true. Yeah. That's why right. that story right. is there. It's like Adam is then and then Eve. Yeah, no, right. but the female and then so the testosterone essentially uh, I wanna say like not coaxes, but kind of is like, hey, you're not gonna, you're not gonna have a clitoris. You're gonna have, uh, a, you know, a penis, let's say, yeah. or not the labia majora. You're gonna have the, uh, you know, the testes, etc. Yeah. So now we have the phthalates and other things, uh, let's say, that can interfere with that. Uh, we'll say is testosteroneization an appropriate word? Like the testosteroneization of that fetus yeah. to turn male. I'm gonna say Andrew. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Andrew. Right. Okay. And so now we have that process that is not completed. So they're under, what did you call them? Under testosterone, under masculinized. Okay. Under mask. And so what does that look like? Let's We're still talking about rats because I hadn't told you about how we went to, to humans, but anyway, yes. so this little male pup, he, he's got his organs, but they're small. The, the penis is too short or shorter than it would have been if he, mother hadn't gotten the testosterone, the, um, the phthalates. And one of the critical things, and this is very surprising, <clears throat> is that the distance from the anus to the genitals, you think about that for a minute, what that is, that's kind of the length of the real estate down there, right? <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. oh, you know, <laughs> so the, the distance bottom- between the anus and where the... I have so many questions about the AGD, but okay. So keep going. Yes. Mm -hmm. That is called the anogenital distance. So this turns out to be an incredibly important distance, which had not been recognized in humans before I used it. Um, It had been recognized in animals. Okay. Back, there was a paper in 1912, which showed that the male distance is 50 to 100% longer than the female. And why is that? Well, because there's a lot more stuff in there, right? A lot of... Well, our inter- ours is kind of tucked in. <laughs> like yeah, all of our stuff right. is like inside, yeah. So the male have this, you know, all this real estate, I like to call it, out there. And it makes this big distance. And it turns out that almost every mammal has this. Big distance, big AGD, long AGD, and females have the short one. One exception, hyenas. Never mind, we won't go there. <laughs> hyenas wow, okay. are very strange, <laughs> huh. sexually. Anyway, but every other mammal, you know, has this disparity more or less, you know, between the male and the female. By the way, let me just say something on the female side here. It, we found out in a, our study, which we later did, which I can tell you how we got to that, um, when the mother had PCOS, and I think you probably talked about PCOS on your show, right? Oh, quite a bit, yes. Mm-hmm. And so you know that one of the properties of PCOS, a woman with PCOS, this is that she makes es- excess testosterone, okay? okay? So now think about what's going on there it, at t- you know, in the genital region, okay? That woman is giving her, you know, genetic female more testosterone than she's expecting. And what do you think that does? She's born with a longer HED. And we showed that. We showed that when the mother had PCOS, the female was born with a longer, more 
masculine, if you will, AGD. Just pretty. That's fascinating. Would you? Did you also see differences, let's say, in the size of the clitoris? We didn't. Was the clitoris we, larger? No. So difficult. Yeah. As it is, measuring AGD accurately is quite well, difficult. That's actually one of my questions. Is yeah. what is the so? Wh- because when you when you measure, let's say, a bony structure, you're like, okay. I want to measure the humerus. It's like, all right, yeah. we have we have bony landmarks, anatomical landmarks that are very clear. This is all soft tissue. And so what are the, how do you, and maybe you can speak, I know this is, this is just like the scientist in me, like, how do you standardize inter-rater and intra-rater reliability? If right. you're trying, if you're measuring, let's say rats, and then I know we haven't jumped, made the jump yet to humans, but what is the position? What is the, is there temperature? You know, I know that all the guys are like, what about the temper? I'm thinking about the Seinfeld episode right. where it's like, it was cold. I was in a cold pool. You know, like, is there, is there, yeah. you know, do yeah. we consider temperature as, you know, maybe there's some shrinkage or, you know, yeah. What are the landmarks that you're looking for? So the, the easiest one I'll talk about first, and I think the most reliable it, and the most reliable one is to go from the anus to the scrotum. Okay. At, and that point, middle of the scrotum or where it starts? Like that point. Okay. It's the it's the posterior insertion of the scrotum. It's the, where the scrotum comes down and what happens there, which is very fortunate for measurement, is that the texture of the skin changes. So the scrotum is rugated, it has these ridges in it, and then once it ends, that little sac comes into the body, that rugation goes away. And the point at which that skin changes is the landmark closest to the anus. So you go straight up from the anus and you go to that point and that you can measure very precisely. And what we do in our human studies, which we haven't talked about, is we have two observers for every 10th child. So we and look these are at- babies that are being measured. These are not adults. Yeah. So all the men that are like, it was cold. It was a pool. I was just in the pool. Like we're not talking okay, about men, adult men. We're talking about babies. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. But let's just say baby there is easy to think about, you know, manipulating and holding. And uh, so for the for for the baby, we did three measurements by each observer. OK. And we excluded you know, we can go into those technical details, but we did our best to make it accurate, averaging, okay. excluding outliers and so on. And, and then we had every 10th baby had an independent, you know, measurement by another observer who did not see what. And, and so the coefficient of variation and the inter-observer reliability, was, you know, coefficient of variation was low, inter-rater reliability was Rater, uh, yeah. great. And, um, the other measure, which is much more difficult and, and really, to your point, is the anus to the penis, and that's the right. Okay, because the and that you is supposed to be the insertion of the penis into the body anterior, closest to the Ventrally, head, in the front. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and it turns out that that landmark is not so precise, and we had so much discussion. Do you press? How hard do you press? Do you know? Well, how do you you know? So that measurement has a significantly bigger error attached to it. And then in females, you have a similar problem. Where do you measure? And um, let's not go into that. We have enough measurement stuff here. But um, standardizing this is was one of our um, 
goals of conducting the argument study. So, so when I heard about the animal phallic syndrome, I thought, it, does it exist in humans? Because John had told me it exists in animals and humans are exposed. So what does it exist in humans, right? So I looked for this syndrome in humans and nobody ever looked for it. So, so we're I looking had, at variations in AGD, the anal genital distance. Not only, but on also the penile size and the descent of the testicles and um, the size of the testicles and so on. So there were measures of size and location, right? So the testicles had to be descended or were less descended when they got a score for that. Okay, so you know I hadn't mentioned that before, but that's one of the conditions of the Valley syndrome that the testes don't descend all the way. Um, and there are other changes internally that which we did not look for um, because we couldn't. Okay, so we spent a lot of time trying to translate the animal exam to, to babies. And um, it was exciting and hard to do that. Um, and we succeeded. And now AGD has been measured in tens of thousands of babies around the world. But at the beginning, when we started this, we had no you know, signposts. We didn't know how to do this in humans. We had to try all these different methods. First, we use a string, a string, not too accurate, right? Then mm -hmm. we used a, a ruler. Then we finally got hit on the calipers that we ended up with. We, we have these very precise calipers now. Um, and then what's the position and how do you standardize the position of the legs? If you think about it, that area where the legs are affect the size of that distance, right? Right, right, right. So we had to standardize how the baby was held and how the legs were held and on and on and on and on. And if people want to read about this, I can definitely tell them, but it's not everybody's cup of tea. Let me just say, we figured out how to do this and we found the phallic syndrome in humans. So what percentile, so what is the measurement that we're looking at? Like, do we want to be above the 50th percentile? Do we want to, what is the no. kind of? No, no, okay. it's not. Yes, no, it's not. It's continuous measurement. So um, let me just say, you make this measurement and then you standardize it for the size of the individual because a big person has bigger hands. Everything's bigger, including, right. so you got to standardize by size. Um, and age, because if it's a very young infant, might not be mature. So you have to standardize for age and size, body size. And when you do that, we don't say something is abnormal if it's past a certain point. There's no such thing as an abnormal HED, abnormally short, abnormally... So there's no absolute number. There's no absolute number absolute. that we're looking for. And right. what our research is was and goes on is doing is looking at things that affect that AGE. And by the way, it's not just phthalates. Many, many papers have looked at other chemicals and found them related to this. If they're hormonally active, <laughs> if they're endocrine disruptors, um, particularly if they affect testosterone. And um, so what we were able to do is put out this measurement, show how to hold the baby, how to measure the stuff, what to measure it with, um, and, you know, have a, a protocol that could be used, actually could be used at birth. And my, what I would love to see is AGD being part of the standard of care. Just like a baby's head circumference is measured, 
they could measure the HED. But that hasn't happened yet. But short of that, as like I say, there's tens of thousands of measurements that have been made and published, and, and it's now widely accepted. Well, that's such a wonderful, I mean, I, I, you know, I've never really paid much attention to the AGD before researching everything about you, but it's such a, in the, in the same way that you go to the pediatrician and they say, hey, your baby's in the 90th percentile for height and weight or whatever it is. It would be wonderful to also have that because we're, you know, based on what we're talking about today, this has massive impl- implications. And I would love for you to expand on some of the implications that the yeah. AGD, let's say, might have on if we're talking about men, their capacity for testosterone, their capacity for sperm, uh, you know, the the number right. of sperm potentially right. that they're able to produce as adult males when they're looking to reproduce themselves, I would assume longevity, there'd be some connection there as well. Like that is so right. important. Right. right. I love this conversation, Stephanie, because you're so smart and you get, you know, you, you, you ask the right question at the right time. It's, it's really uh, great. Um, and Yes. So that's the next question, I think. Who cares? Why do we care how long this distance is? Because if you look at these boys, it's not like they're missing a limb or something. You know, it's a very subtle difference. You wouldn't see it with the naked eye, right? And so we asked that question. And to answer that, of course, we had to do another study. So these babies are too young to have sexual function, of course. And so we had to go to older males. And what we did was we enrolled college students in Rochester. And um, these students were wonderful. We paid them $75 and they gave us a sperm sample and they gave us a questionnaire completed and they allowed us to measure their HED. By the way, the method of measuring- Good deal. That's a good deal. Right? <laughs> you got a good deal there with 75 bucks. <laughs> the method, the way we did HD for the boys, for these young men, was, of course, different than for an infant who could have be held by their mother and so on. But and anyway, that's all written up. Um, and what we found was quite amazing, a direct linear relationship between the length of the HED and the number of sperm. So the higher, longer the HD, the higher the sperm count. Very good correlation. I think it was around 0.9, which is really astounding. Wow. Maybe point, maybe I'm making that up, but I think that's right. I should have looked it up, but I don't remember exactly. Um, yeah. and, and then a colleague in Stanford did it on another population. He did it in men coming into this infertility clinic and he showed that it was related also, again, he confirmed the sperm relationship, but he also found that it was related to fertility. So um, yeah. there we had the answer to the question, who cares? And as you correctly pointed out, um, this has an impact on longevity and health throughout your life. Because um, men with low sperm count, on average, have more heart disease, more diabetes, more reproductive cancers, and an earlier age at death. I mean, I say that slowly and carefully because it's very, very important. And by the way, females who are infertile have higher rates of cancer in 
and, and so on and so on. So there's a comparable story always in the female. And we see the the same when the female's AGD is small. We also see similar. Do we see long term no. the cerebrovascular, no. cardiovascular? No. We don't. Because the female mm-hmm. AGD is small naturally without the influence of hormones being disrupted. Testosterone. Right. Um, if the female AGD is longer, that's a different question. And there, as in PCOS mothers, there are some impacts on the children. But let's not get sidetracked on that. The point is that it matters. And now I'm going to confess that there is an important piece of the puzzle missing. And that is, how do we know that these boys in Rochester who had a short AGD had a short AGD when they were born? Right? If we want to say a baby in, you know, just born with a short AGD has a dim future in terms of, you know, a reduced chance of fertility, we have to be able to have followed, followed those children from birth to an age when we could get their sperm count and look at their fertility. And we have not done that because my first paper was only in 2000. And these boys are now just at an age where we could start addressing this question. And I'm trying to do it. I'm trying to get money to do it and get people to cooperate. But you see this big question? It's a really important question. And, and, and so in this study, you know, so your listeners are hearing my thoughts about my next study. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. Um, you know, I, I want to follow the children born to the parents of our, we have two large studies. And in which we measured AGD. And in the first one, we also had the father's sperm count for reasons that we don't have to go into now. But what we'd l- I'd love to see in the children, the males, what is their sperm count? Because yeah, one of the compared to dads is declining sperm count. But on yeah. average, I would suspect that the children will have a somewhat lower sperm count than their fathers, which has not ever been looked at. That I know of. I don't know, but I don't know of any study that have looked at the correlation between the father's and the son's sperm count on a population. I, oh. I want to come back to phthal- phthalate syndrome for a moment because this is, you know, I've heard you talk on other shows and there are not many things that are assigned at birth. Like there are not many conditions that we assign at birth. And phthalate syndrome, to your point, you talk about this in the book, is assigned at, like you have fetal alcohol syndrome is very obviously assigned at birth phthalate syndrome i'm drawing a blank if there's I, I can't think of anything else maybe that's assigned at birth but it is very rare for yes. a, a yes. condition to be observable in a, in a newborn yes um yeah i wanted to maybe talk about so we have these phthalates and you know it's a big word it has a silent ph in it uh where do we find where do we find these chemicals so this is kind of the you know there's things that we have, you were talking about things that we have control over, you know, our lifestyle, things that we may or may not, we, we don't have control over, but maybe there's some control like phthalates are in, where, where are they and how can we reduce our exposure to them? So I started to say that if you wanted plastic to be soft, you would put phthalates in it. It's, it's one of the major purposes of phthalates is to make plastic soft. So anything with tubing that's soft is going to have phthalates in it. And the kind of scary thing is that they are not bound to the plastic matrix. 
they can leave that easily. And one of the things that makes them leave it is heat. So warm tubing, and particularly if there's something going through it, that will pick up the phthalates. And when the stuff comes out the other end, it will contain the phthalates. So let me give you an example. Um, very simple example. Milk a cow. Milk, this is published study. <laughs> milk a cow by hand. Okay? No phthalates in the milk. Milk a cow with a milking machine. You've seen milking machines with all those tubes. Yeah. yeah. Contain phthalates. That milk has phthalates in it. Because the tubing is soft because it's going into some... Exactly. Yeah, and, some the, and the milk is warm and it's pulling them out. Okay, NICU. Oh, the milk is warm, yeah. Yeah, the, war, the warmth, it, it, you know, increases the chemical activity. Okay, right. so the, the um, NICU, preemie in the NICU, you imagine those pictures with all those tubes, right? Mm-hmm. Measure the urine of those infants. Oh, God, and, you're breaking yeah. my heart. Hmm. Right? There's a direct mm -hmm. correlation between number of tubes, particularly those that are used for breathing, the nasal cannula, and the amount of phthalates in the urine. Okay? And you can, throughout the hospital, okay, just you can just think about, you know, dialysis and chemotherapy and all introduced phthalates in the process. So, there's so a, does the exposure get worse? So we've been talking about intrauterine, like we've been talking about when the mother is pregnant with the son, but now we have this. So the baby is now no longer in the womb when she's in the, or he's in the NICU. Does the, does the exposure, does the exposure when the baby is young and does it continue to just get worse and maybe affect the AGD and affect the sperm no. count and affect the testosterone? No, I, I think not. Um, limited data, but it, it, it I think what the damage that's done is to other systems that depend on testosterone. The, the genital development is pretty much complete after, before birth. So that is not going to be altered by exposure in the NICU. However, other things are. And there are a number Lung of- Lung development, brain development, like right. all, like there's receptors for testosterone all over the body. Yeah. Blood pressure, yeah. this study. So- I don't, this is a very new field, but um, the question of what these chemicals are doing in our tubing in the hospitals is really important. You know, first do no harm, right? right. Well, yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's a big problem. But let me go back. Most people are not going to be in the hospital, fortunately, and they want to know where they're going to get salaries. And so they're going to uh, let me say a few words about that. And then, of course, I'm going to say they should buy my book, Countdown, because in Countdown, we go in a lot of detail, two chapters on where these things are coming from and how to avoid them. Okay. But um, I would say the primary exposure is through food. And just like I told you, the milk could contain phthalates. So can your spaghetti sauce that's made processed through, you know, plastic tubing. The tubes. Yeah. Anything that goes, you know, it's going to be um, picking this stuff up. And um, then in the packaging, there's plastic. In the cooking materials, don't cook your food in plastic in the microwave. That's like the wonder 
you know, the worst thing you can do. Um, and because, you know, it just comes right out. And phthalates are also put in products for other reasons, not just in plastic. Um, they're put in personal care products. And I know you're very, you know, you've educated people about the risks of certain personal care products. Um, and um, what do they do? Why are they in there? Okay. <clears throat> well, if you put a hand cream on your hand and then you come back and look at it 10 minutes, 15 minutes later, it's gone, right? It's gone into your skin. It's been absorbed. Phthalates help that process. Increase absorption, right? If you put on nail polish, you want to hold the color. Lipstick hold the color. Perfume hold the scent. Phthalates do that. Okay? So that those are some major purposes of that phthalates are added to, you know, you know, they're actually added to the chemical that we put on our skin or put on our nails or spray on our hair, hairspray. And even, it, it, let's just carve out a little special category here for women who are still menstruating. When you have pads that are scented, you know, and you have, tam I don't think tampons, they don't think, I don't think they sent tampons or maybe they do, but I think that the pads, they, they sent them, right? And this is a very highly absorbent area uh, as well. So that, that, that would be another area, yeah. let's say, right. where, uh, right. where you might be exposed to. Right. And you can go through your house and look for anything. Plastic is easy to look at. You can find it. You know, you can find a plastic toy. You can find a plastic shower curtain. You can find plastic boots. You can find... And then there are, by the way, many, many other chemicals that alter the body's hormones. So these are just two important classes. Phthalates and the bisphenols, by the way. Here's a little trick that manufacturers did. When people got upset about BPA, they said, hmm, okay, we'll take it out and we can label it BPA-free. You know what I'm going to say. You're smiling. I can tell. I do, and yes. they substituted a very similar chemical that did the same thing, and it was called BPS or BPF. And so people go, oh, I, don't, I buy BPA-free, but they don't know that they're getting BPS and BPF. That's kind of dishonest, right? Um, we call it whack-a-mole. <laughs> totally. You know, hit the hole here and it pops up over here. Yeah. So, and then, by the way, we're not talking in detail at all about the barrier chemicals, the PFAS chemicals like Teflon and the things that make your jacket water repellent and your pizza box oil repellent and so on and so forth. But any barrier is going to have hormonally active chemicals. Like sunscreen, would you say sunscreen as well? Is yeah. Is that like a peat? Yeah. Yeah, right. So, you know, in one hour or hour and a half, we're coming to an hour and a half. Um, I can't possibly go into all this, but... Um, no, and we no, of course. We have to buy the book. You have to buy this book. Right. Yeah. We'll, okay. have, in, we'll have the link right. in the show notes okay. for everyone. I'm trying to do all this, but um, it's so important and it affects everybody's lives. And by the way, everyone can do what they can given their situation, again, I'm going to talk about this economic justice thing. Fast food is very bad. Fast food restaurants contain huge amounts of all of these chemicals. That's why the McDonald's burger is the same 10 years from now. You know, there's all there's been right. these memes right. where you buy the burger and then they take a picture of it every year and it looks exactly the same. It doesn't deteriorate. Right. And 
So I tell people, they say, well, what can I do? I say, well, <clears throat> go to the farmer's market, eat, buy organic, take it home, wash it, cook it in a nonstick pan, and you're good to go. However, this makes a lot of assumptions. It means that you have a grocery near you mm -hmm. or a farmer's market near you where you can get this fresh produce. You can buy organic there and you can afford it, right? It's not everybody. But if you can, that is my recommendation. Um, water, cons you know, be careful about your water. We want to treat our water. Now we know, I don't know if you've if you heard of micro nanoplastic. Yes, I wanted to ask you about microplastics and, and nanoplastics, right. yeah. Um, so tiny, tiny microscopic particles of plastic that are now everywhere. They've been found in the placenta, found in the placenta. Found in seminal fluid. This is a crime. Found, this is a crime. It's criminal. Right? Yeah. And, and it's in our air and it's in our dust. And how do we defend ourselves? We cannot. We cannot. We have to keep them out of the process of production. We cannot buy our way out of it. We can't think our way out of it. We can't, you know avoided by good practice. We have to get our regulators to do that. And in this country, we're doing very badly at that. The EU is doing much better, by the way. Um, so it is possible, but, you know, we have a lot, huge... But these, have, these, these, these companies have, or this sort of category, let's say, the plastics, they have huge lobby groups, huge Absolutely. influence, Absolutely. huge influence. Yeah, it's very, it's very difficult to get around it. Right. Um, and I, I, I want to say something at the risk of getting canceled because, and I, yeah. I want to respect your time too, but I, I, I want to, what we've been talking about is terrifying, is terrifying uh, in terms of this under, uh, this incomplete masculinization uh, that you've been, that you've been describing. And I don't, I'll, I'll say it like this, you know, uh, you've talked on other shows and in your book, you talk about how this sort of changes um, you know, behavior uh, in in boys, it can be you know, and behavior again, like big category to tease apart what's chemical, what's social, what's you know socioeconomic, all that. Um, I don't. I, I'll say that I don't care. My son, when he was younger, uh, you know, he both my sons, uh, they would just play with the toys that they had, right? But if let's say there was a Barbie or a Cabbage Patch Kid or something, I, I wouldn't care that he'd be playing with a tea set or Barbie if that if that was what was interesting to him right so if it was kind of naturally driven like an intrinsic driver like hey i want to play with these barbies and i want to play house or whatever fine but i would be bothered by it if that was mediated by these uh, maybe intrauterine exposure or uh, when he's out of the womb when he's exposed to these chemicals like i have a problem with that because now we are changing the path of this child's life which wasn't his destiny Right. Um, so that's, that's sort of where I, and I, I, I hope that I'm, I, I would, I would assume that most people would take issue with that. Like, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn here where if you are chemically altering someone who was not meant to go down that path uh, as a mother, uh, I would, I would have a problem with that. And it kind of brings me, and I know I, I want to maybe, maybe this is food for thought. Maybe this is another podcast when you finish your next study, but 
you know, one of the things that we are seeing more and more, and this might be a function of social media, but we're starting to see more, we'll say gender fluidity or, we'll, uh, you know, uh, gender dysphoria is the, is the uh, I think they removed it from the DSM now, but, uh, you know, it was classified as a mental disorder. Uh, I'm not, I'm not clear if it's still in the DSM, um, or not, but when we're starting to see these individuals who may potentially have this intrauterine exposure to some of these chemicals, so when they're growing up, these men are now saying, I'm not a man, I'm actually a woman, um, or I'm not a woman, I'm actually a man. Um, and I know that there's, I know this is a very complex topic, and, and I want to be very sensitive and loving and, you know, inclusive here. But I will say that if that is being driven by environmental toxicants, I have a big effing problem with that. So this is a huge topic, Stephanie, and I can't, again, I would refer, we have a whole chapter on this called gender dysphoria. Um, And um, I just want to say whether, the first question I'm asked is, you know, do you think that chemicals are playing a role in the increase we're seeing in X, Y, and Z. And I want to challenge right there the increase because yes, we're seeing an increase, but whether there actually is an increase, you know, there thing diagnostic bias. Like underreporting and not having the I mean, diagnostic criteria. Yes. Up, you know, yes. it would not have been acceptable for, you know, uh, uh, you know, for this to be discussed. It was just not... It was around. There even no even problem. being a homosexual was. I remember watching Oprah, right. and people were like, you know, right? They were throwing things at them. It's like God. Right. This, right. Yeah, I mean, thankfully that's no longer the case. Like it's right. relatively so, accepted in society yeah. now for you to sort of choose your your partner, whatever they are. So, putting aside the question of whether there's been an increase, it's certainly been an increase in talking about it and discussing it, and and you know interest in it that's for sure but whether there actually has been an increase that's another question that's unresolved oh, okay yeah mm-hmm. but the the harder question is if there is an increase can it be ascribed to environmental chemicals and that you know just asking that question is very offensive to a lot of people because it implies that this is something that went wrong and people who have you know fluidity in their gender don't feel that this is wrong, that this is a defect, that this is an error, right? And I have to um, agree with them, certainly leave that open. Um, So the question is a difficult one. And nevertheless, I can tell you, if we, I, I would say we don't know. However, in our study, in studies, we did ask the mother, how often does your child play with dolls, play with tea sets, play with guns, play with cars? And that was actually looked at in a, um, you know, animals experiment where boys, male, monkeys chose to play with a car rather than a doll. And the female monkeys chose to play with the doll. So there does seem to be in a genetic male and a genetic female a difference in toy choice, let's put it like this. And in our study, we didn't actually take the children into a room 
and gave them toys the way the monkeys were given, which would have been a much better experiment, by the way. We rather asked the mother, how often does your child play with dolls, play with key sets, play with guns, play with cars, right? And if they have an older sister, the answer is, well, always. Right, right. (laughs) So it's influenced by your sibling, it's influenced by the attitudes of your parents, which we tried to adjust for. And yes, we did find that there was, when the mother was exposed to phthalates, there was some under-masculinization in terms of this scale, which may be off, but there was a relationship. So I would say this is an open question. It's a sensitive question. It's a difficult question. And um, I think in the future, you know, with large databases, we'll be able to put together exposure in the mother with behavior in the child when they're teenagers, for example. But we don't have that data now. So I'd say at this point, I would just say, I don't know. But we have some suggestion that it it's an interesting thing to look at. That's all. Let's let's reconnect. So we will, yeah. uh, you know, when you write your next book or you complete your next study, I think that there is so much interesting research that you're doing. I want to thank you for your time. The hour and a half just flew right by. I could go yeah, for right. another two hours, really. But uh, thank you for your time, your focus, your energy, your research, and your work. I think that this conversation is going to be so useful to the moms that are listening, uh, preconception that are already mothers, uh, raising boys, raising girls. And um, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you too. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, all right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 